right, well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me. Let's look together at the book of Genesis, chapter 45. Genesis, chapter 45. In the last couple of messages in this series, we were looking at the beginning of this chapter, the first 15 verses. This morning, we're going to move to the second half of the chapter. So we're going to begin in verse 16, Genesis 45 and verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I love this passage of Scripture. I really do. I love how Joseph looks at his brothers and says, do not quarrel on the way. I think that's, that's wonderful. You can picture the grin on his face as he said that in light of everything that has gone before. I love thinking about old Jacob as he hears the news that he could have never expected to hear that the son he thought has been dead for all of these years is not dead but is alive And not just alive, he is the second most powerful man on the planet in that day. Oh, how Jacob must have thanked God for such a wonderful surprise. His his heart certainly was overflowing with joy. What we see in these verses is another glorious truth about God's providence. Remember, God's providence is the theme of this whole section of Genesis, from Genesis 37 to to Genesis 50. This is the theme that we're kind of swimming in during these days as we're studying these chapters, the theme of God's providence. What is providence? I love how the Heidelberg Catechism answers that question. 
The question is, question 27, what do you mean by the providence of God? And here is the answer. The Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. That is the doctrine of providence, that all things come not by chance, but by the fatherly hand of God for His glory and the good of His people. And what we've already seen in this chapter is that God's providence extends even to the thoughts and the words and the actions of human beings. Even the things that you and I say and do are included in God's plan. We've also seen last week that God's providence extends even to the evil deeds that are performed in this world. Sin is not a disruption of God's plan. Rather, sin is something that is under God's control, whereby God ultimately gains victory over evil and shows His own awesome goodness. Well, this morning we come to the third and final truth about providence that I want to show you from this chapter It is beautifully illustrated in the verses we just read, and it can be stated this way. God's providence shows a particular care for God's chosen people. God's providence shows a particular care for God's chosen people. Another way to state it would be this way. God's providence works to bless His people. This is, of course, Romans 8.28, right? For all those who are called according to God's purpose, God works all things for their good. God's providential acts are always an expression of His love whereby He serves the cause of ultimately blessing His people. Uh, Jacob and his sons were the chosen people of God on earth in that day. God worked even through their sins to ultimately bless them. God worked many years in advance of the coming famine to make sure that this family would be spared, this family would be cared for. In fact, more than that, they would be radically blessed. God's providence is always at work to care for His people. Now, I've stated that that's the main doctrine of the text and of this message. I think it's very clearly illustrated. Uh, Don't forget about verses 5, 7, and 8, right? which we've already seen the last two times we were here. It is simply undeniable that it was God who brought all of these great blessings upon Jacob and his family. Yes, Pharaoh says to Joseph, do this. But there is a a stronger hand at work than Pharaoh's in turning all of these events to bless God's people. And so for the bulk of our message this morning, I want us to consider the implication of this doctrine. If it is true, as this passage illustrates, that God's providence is working to bless His people, 
what is the implication for us? And in particular, I want each of us here who are Christians to consider how God's providence has been working already in our lives to bless us. I want us to know with a biblical foundation, but also from our own experience, that God has been doing us good every moment of our lives. Now, admittedly, I am preaching specifically to Christians this morning. If you're here and you are not a Christian, I pray that this message will convict you of your need for Christ. I pray that this message will create in you a kind of jealousy for those who know Christ, that you would desire to have this Savior as your own Savior, so that these things which I'm about to say about Christians can be truthfully said about you. But I am speaking directly to my brothers and sisters this morning about this truth, that God is working every moment in every way to bless you. Four headings. We're only going to touch two of them this morning. God's work in giving you life. God's work in converting your soul. God's work in supplying your needs. And God's work in bringing you safely to the end of your life through death into heaven. So heading number one, God's work in giving you life. God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That much can be said of every child of God. That God's purpose of doing you good began long before you were even created. Consider how God was, how good God was in giving you your life. God chose for you to be a human being. God could have made you anything He wanted you to be, but He desired for you to be one of those creatures that bears His image. No other thing in all of creation has this privilege of being an image bearer of God but human beings. No other thing that God has created has such dignity as human beings. You ought to be thankful First and foremost, that in His providence, God has done you good by making you a person. Martin Luther tells a story about two Catholic cardinals who were riding in a very prestigious carriage to the Council of Constance, a very important meeting for higher-ups in the Catholic Church. And so these are real dignified men riding along in their carriage. And as they were going, they suddenly heard a man in a nearby field And he was weeping, and he was wailing aloud. And they stopped, and they approached this man, wondering what in the world was causing him such grief. As they approached, they saw that the man was looking at an ugly toad. An ugly toad. And they asked him why he was weeping, and and the man said that his heart was just melting as he thought about the fact that God had chosen to make him a man and not so loathsome a creature as this toad. He told the cardinals, This is what I love to weep at. This man often thought about this. He said it produced in him great love and gratitude to God. 
The cardinals said to one another, the uneducated, this uneducated man will rise and take heaven while all of us and our learning shall be cast into hell. For in all of their knowledge, they longed to have the kind of tender, grateful heart that this man had. So you ought to be thankful, first and foremost, that you are. That God's providence has created you as a human being. God has done good in making you a person and not a toad or anything else that you could have been. As Christians, we can say, though, that God not only chose to create us in His own image, but He also chose for us to be one of His people. Of the billions of billions of people that God ordained to walk in this world, you are one of the remnant. You are one of those He purposed to redeem. He consecrated you in His plan. He he set you apart to be one that would know Him in a special way. You would be made His child. You would know what it is to share His joy for all eternity. Then God has done you good in working to form your body. Psalm 139.13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise You, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What a wonder You are. Body and soul, carefully crafted by Your Creator. In eternity past, God determined what You would look like. He determined your eye color and your hair color and all the various aspects of your body's appearance. He could have chosen for you to be one of those who are born with a missing limb or with a missing eye or with a missing ear. Can you imagine what your life would be like today had God not chosen to give you the gift of sight? Can you imagine what your life would be had God chosen to create you deaf? or lame, or mentally incapable of caring for yourself. You and I know some of these folks, and and we love these folks, but, but we do not envy them. We think about how hard their lives are, and the many opportunities and joys that they miss out on, because God's perfect plan meant for them to be born without all the benefits of a fully functioning body. And yet you, dear Christian, were born with with working eyes. You were born with working ears. You were born with the ability to live a productive life. Do you ever take time to thank God for this? Do you not see how God in His providence has already done you much good? In God's providence, He caused you to be born into the circumstances in which you have been born. Consider the alternatives. Human beings have walked this planet for at least 65 centuries. Many would say that's far too conservative a number, but at least 65 centuries of of human life. 6,500 years that men and women for sure have lived on this earth. Had you been born in any of the first 63 of those 65 centuries, imagine how different your life would be from what it is today. Imagine how many of the conveniences we take for granted that we would have done without. Are we not thankful for indoor plumbing? Are we not thankful for modern technology? 
in the first 63 of the 65 centuries in which people have lived, you would have been cared for by doctors who knew far, far less about the human body. You would have used much more cumbersome tools than the tools we have today. Life in general would likely have been much more difficult for you than your life is now. You would not have been able to just get in a car and travel somewhere or, or make a, even make a phone call to someone. Consider if, you had been, been, consider if you had been born right in this area in any of the first 60 centuries. This would have meant that you would have been born as a Native American under a false religion. You would have been taught to, to worship created things rather than the Creator. Your life would have been filled with rituals and practices that ultimately honor the devil more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that you had been born in some other part of the world. God could have ordained for you to be born in a Muslim nation, as so many are, raised by Muslim parents fully convinced that Allah is God and Muhammad is His prophet. You could have even been taught to celebrate jihad. You could have been one of those celebrating in the streets when the Twin Towers fell. You could have been born in eastern Romania in one of those hundreds of villages where all people know is a Christianity of form, but not a Christianity of substance. Your life would have been marked by a never-ending burden to try and work your way to heaven through money and prayers and rituals. And you would have struggled to understand grace as so many of them do. You would have struggled to understand the truth of Christ's righteousness made available to you that would have boggled your mind as it boggles theirs. Yet God who chooses when and where every child will be born chose for you to be born when you were, where you were, with all of the blessings that accompany that. Dear friend, do you not see how at the very beginning of your life, God was working all things for your good? God was working to bless you as one of His dear children, putting you in a context where He would draw you to Himself. God's providence works to bless His people. That's seeing God's providence at work in your birth. Let's consider God's providence at work in your conversion. And this is the sweetest of all. Already we have seen the unique and strange providences that God used to bring Joseph's brothers to repentance. If we had planned the way that God was going to bring Joseph's brothers to salvation, we would certainly have never come up with a plan as strange as the one laid out in Genesis 37 through 42-43. Right? The, the whole issue with Judah and Tamar and, and the way God used that entire incredibly messed up situation to bring humility to Judah's heart, to ripen his soul, to begin to feel sorrow for his sin against Joseph and ultimately turn and believe in the God of Jacob and Joseph. This was, this was a strange way of bringing about salvation, and yet that was what God did. God orchestrated event after event to woo the hearts of Joseph's brothers, to, to create faith in their hardened souls. This is how it is with all of God's people. God works in mysterious ways to save us. Have you ever considered all the things God must have done to bring about your own conversion? 
Not only did he work to try and bring you, not to try, God doesn't have to try anything. Right? There is no try with God. He does or does not, as Yoda would say. So, so God did not try. Right? God worked. He worked to bring you in contact with the gospel. And He worked to make sure that at the appointed time, your heart would be ripe soil for the gospel. So many people hear the gospel and it bounces off like, like seeds on a road, right? And yet God worked so that you would have contact with the gospel and that your soul, the soil of your heart would be ripe to receive it. John Flavel, whose book, The Mystery of Providence, I read in the airplane going to uh, the RAM conference a couple of weeks ago and so encouraged me in writing this message. He, he said this about God's work in our conversion. Listen carefully to this. He says, In nothing does providence shine forth more gloriously in this world than in ordering the occasions, the instruments, and the means of conversion of the people of God. However skillfully its hand has molded your body, however tenderly it has preserved them, and however bountifully it has provided for them, if it had not also ordered some means or other for your conversion, all the other favors and benefits it had done for you would mean little. This, oh this, is the most excellent benefit you have received from its hand. You are more indebted to it for this than for all your other mercies. In other words, when you think about the providence of God and you see how God has been working in all of these ways to do you good, this is the shining star at the top of the tree that God has worked to bring you to Himself. Your conversion is a wonderful thing to think about. In my case, there are so many things that God calls to come together for me to be saved. I was especially blessed to be born in the home of a pastor, one who believed the gospel, one who taught the gospel. Both my dad and my mom loved and continue to love the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never known a time in my life when I was not intimately connected to a local church. I grew up in Galatia, North Carolina, middle of nowhere, population 33 at the time. I grew up living next door to our church, seeing the church every single day when I stepped out the back door. I grew up playing in the churchyard, driving my go-kart over the graves, running through the halls. I made my parents I'm sorry, I was made by my parents to be present every time the church doors were open. I knew Galatia Baptist Church so well at that time that you could have put me in there in the complete pitch black dark and I could have walked you through that church with no problem. Because I just lived there. I'd been there so much. Looking back, it is a blessing that I'm so unspeakably thankful for that I grew up with my life so connected to the people of God. God calls me to be born with a reasonable mind that could learn and with a mind that could, that could have the opportunity to be educated. I was taught to read something that the vast majority of people in the first 63 centuries of this world did not know how to do. And many millions upon millions in our own day still do not know how to read. And yet God blessed me in His providence with the ability to read. I was given a Bible in my own language, something that many, many others do not have. I was encouraged by all kinds of influences to open up my Bible and to read its truths. I grew up surrounded by Christian music and wonderful hymns that celebrated the grace of God. 
I had the sweetest great-grandmother in the world who would gather us around her when we would visit her in Gadsden, Alabama, and we'd sit at her feet and sing together, God is so good. My grandmother in Northampton County was my Sunday school teacher for many years, and she taught me to memorize the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes and the Ten Commandments and Psalm 100. Now, Many, many others have had similarly blessed upbringings and still never come to Christ. But over time, God chose to humble my arrogant soul. God revealed to me through all of these things, my many sins and my own sinful heart. God used a number of godly influences, wonderful speakers, worldview-shattering books, and kind friends to teach me the true way of salvation. God brought me to follow Him. I chose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but I chose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because God had chosen me a long time ago, and He irresistibly wooed my heart until I had no choice in the matter. I couldn't help but follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit Himself, had hunted me down to do me good. He had so surrounded me with gospel influences that it was only a matter of time by His Holy Spirit's power till my heart would submit. And at God's appointed time, it happened. How was it for you? What did God in His providence orchestrate? How many things must He have done, even centuries before you were born, to set the stage to break your hardened heart, and to bring you to himself. Do you see how his hand worked? Sometimes God's hand works in the most unusual of ways. Flavel tells of a 76-year-old man who went to visit a dying friend. And this man, going to visit his friend, he's he's a respectable man. He was one that others in his society would have called a decent man. And while visiting his dying friend, another man came in the room, also there to visit. And this man began talking to the dying friend, knowing that that man's time was short. And so he immediately began talking about how you can't rely on your own works for salvation. He explained to the sick and dying man that that there are a lot of men who live so-called decent lives, but who never really come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man was witnessing to this dying man all the while this 76-year-old friend was just sitting by the bedside and he was just soaking it all up. That man had come in hoping to win the soul of the dying man, but God used him to win the soul of the other man who was there to visit. The 76-year-old man said this. He said, had I died before reaching age 76, I would have perished. For I realize now that I did not know Christ. I was telling that story to my dad as we were in the truck driving through Mississippi, and uh, he told me this account of something that happened to him when he was on a mission trip in Venezuela years and years ago. He said that he and his Venezuelan translator had been making visits. The church that they were working with had set up various families that they had contacts with, and they wanted my dad to go with the translator and to share the gospel with these families. And so the dad had spent the day with the translator, talking to these different families, going from house to house. And when they had finished, dad said his translator asked him, he said, look, my parents are not believers. 
would you be willing to come and to talk to my parents before we go home for the day? And of course, my dad said, yeah, so you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And so um, my dad went and he, he sought to share the gospel with, uh, it was an elderly couple, and sought to share the gospel with them. Uh, at the end, uh, they, they prayed together, they gathered together and held hands and prayed something of a sinner's prayer. But dad told me even in the truck, he said, you know, honestly, I, I don't know if they, if they really got it. I don't know if they really understood. But he said that after they were done praying, a woman who he hadn't even noticed was there, came rushing into the room with tears coming out of her eyes. Apparently she was a caretaker, a woman who, who comes in to, to look over this elderly couple. And he said he hadn't even known she was there, but she had heard every word and said she came up to them after they were done praying and said, do you think Jesus might be my Savior? And he said, you know, the whole time I thought I was witnessing to this couple and God was using me to witness to this other lady that I didn't even see in the room. Another example of God's providence in bringing about the conversion of his people is Julian Niegu. Julian is a gypsy, one of the Roma people. The gypsies are despised by regular Romanians. They are typically very poor. Gypsies tend to live in very poor conditions. Uh, the gypsy children are often taught to provide for their families by going out into the streets and by begging. They learn to steal at a very young age. Well, as a young man, Julian managed to get hold of a violin and to learn how to play it. And so Julian left Romania and began traveling throughout Western Europe, playing his violin on the streets, trying to earn enough to, to have enough to eat and to lay his head down at night. And when he didn't earn what he needed... He would steal what he needed. Well, eventually the authorities caught him and he was arrested. And he was sent back to Romania and a ban was placed on him so that it was now illegal for Julian to leave the country. But what Julian did is he changed his name and then went right back out there and kept doing the same thing. Well, in God's providence, a group of believers came to Julian and spoke the gospel into his life. And God had brought Julian to a place where his heart was fertile soil. The gospel land on, landed on Julian in such a way that it revolutionized him. He truly became a new creation in Christ. One of the Romanian pastors that we support through Romanian American Mission, his name is Adrian Barzo, he came into contact with this newly converted gypsy man, Julian. And he began to take him under his wing and to teach him and to mentor him and to, to help him better understand the things of the Bible. This was incredible because Romanians typically will have nothing to do with, with the gypsy people. Even Romanian Christians typically don't want to interact with other gypsy believers. But Adrian, a Romanian, was willing to take Julian, a gypsy, and to, to become kind of a mentor to him and to help him know better the way of Christ. Because of that, Julian is now pastoring a gypsy church in Baco, Romania. He is one of the most solid, mature pastors that we support through Romanian American Mission. Now, he still leaves Romania illegally. The ban's still in place. He leaves Romania illegally, but we send him illegally because he, as a gypsy, is able to go to these huge enclaves of Muslim gypsies in Macedonia and Greece and Serbia where they do not know the gospel and they would not listen to you, they would not listen to me, they would not listen to a Romanian, but because he is a gypsy, they listen to him and he's able to preach the gospel to them. 
And so this is just another example of God's providence in taking a a gypsy man, an outlaw who's going throughout Western Europe, bringing him into contact with the right people and the right influences, not only to save his soul, but through him now to do a work of saving the souls of many, many more in a part of the world where the gospel is desperately needed. This is God's providence at work in converting his people and blessing his people. One more, one more illustration. How else do you teach this doctrine but illustration? I mean, I I know I'm telling a lot of stories. Don't hate me for it. I know I I get on storytelling. But how else do you explain the doctrine of the goodness of God's providence in converting His people than just telling stories about God's providence in converting His people? Um, Many of you may have seen this lately. It's uh, it's become kind of popular on the Internet, but it's a really, really neat story. Uh, It's the story of Rosaria Butterfield. Um, Rosaria Butterfield came out as a lesbian at age 28. Uh, When she was 36, she became a tenured professor in the English department at Syracuse University, and she taught in the area of women's studies. Uh, She had a partner whom she lived with. She was very involved in protest and fighting for gay rights, uh, as well as other very liberal causes. She was involved with uh, you know, veganism and, and PETA and things like that as well. In 1997, the Promise Keepers movement held a rally in her area, and she wrote an article to her local newspaper criticizing that Promise Keepers rally. She received a lot of responses in the mail, some that she classified as hate mail, some that she classified as fan mail. But she received one letter that didn't seem to fit into either category. It was written to her from the pastor of the local Reformed Presbyterian Church, who also happened to be a neighbor of hers. And his letter was not like the others. It was not a liberal letter praising her for her scanting, raving against promise keepers. And it was not an angry Christian letter, you know, attacking her because she was against what God said. It was a very gentle letter. It asked her about her well-being. It it asked her, well, have you considered this or have you considered that? And at the end of the letter, he invited her to give him a call if she wanted to get together and talk about these things further. Well, it just so happened coincidence? just so happened that Rosaria and another colleague at Syracuse University had just begun working on a book about the religious right. And her colleague told her, you need to call this man. It will be great research for you as we write our book. And so she called this pastor and said, well, you know, I would like to talk more with you about some of these things for this book I'm writing. And so this pastor and his wife welcomed her into their home. They served her a vegetarian meal. They got to know her. They were not pushy towards her. And they became friends with her. Now at the same time that God was building a relationship between her and this couple, she was also having to read the Bible. She was reading the Bible because of her research for this book. She, she said she had never read the Bible before, but now in order to do her research well on the religious right, she needed to make sure she knew the Bible well. And so she read it, and she read it, and she read it a lot, and it began to change her. Her friendship with the pastor and his wife grew and grew, and they began introducing her to, to friends from their church. And, and before long, Rosaria said that she had two major groups of friends. There were her gay friends, and there were her Christian friends. 
On February 14, 1999, she got out of bed with her partner. She got dressed and went to her first service at the Reformed Presbyterian Church. From that day forward, she continued to attend. The Bible continued to impact her and change her. And finally, in the fall of 1999, she ended her relationship and she came out as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, she is the wife of a Presbyterian pastor. She is a mother. It all began when Bill McCartney decided to hold a Promise Keepers rally near Syracuse, New York. Right? This was God orchestrating things to end up bringing about a remarkable salvation where the glory could only go to God alone. And by the way, Rosaria's testimony is now affecting many, many other people and helping to lead them to Christ. This is the providence of God at work in converting His people. Now, our next message, our last one on Genesis 45, we will see God's providence doing His people good in meeting our needs and in bringing us safely to the end of our lives through death into heaven. But here's what I want you to get. God's providence is at work to bless you if you are His. Can you imagine how Joseph's brothers must have felt? Suddenly they and their families are not only going to survive the famine, they're going to thrive in the midst of the famine. There had been so much anxiety in their life, so much of a burden. How are we even going to feed our families? And suddenly all of those burdens have been relieved by God. And as they look back over the past many years, they now see how God has been arranging for this. Even when they hated God, even when they were jealous of Joseph, even when they were committing that cruel act of violence against him, God was working to make them ready for this day when he would do them much good. Even old Jacob must have seen how God had put him through a tough time of grief only to ultimately thrill him with unspeakable and unexpected joy. Dear Christian, my question to you is this. Do you not love this God who is being so good to you? Do you not love this God who has worked so much for your benefit? Does it not warm your heart to think of His awesome, tender love towards you. Are you not grateful? And if there is anyone here that is an unbeliever, I would simply say, would you not want this God as your God? Would you not want this God working all for your good? It can be yours through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.